Welcome to this Thursday edition of Navara Live. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean, and tonight's show, I will be joined by the woman who puts glamorous in analysis, Sean Fay. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Moya. <laughs> pleasure to have you back. And for tonight's top stories, we will be talking about the continuing fallout from those Matt Hancock WhatsApp messages, including Gavin Williamson having to apologize to teachers. We will also be discussing, is the menopause left wing? Well, Kemi Badenoch certainly seems to think so. And we will be talking about a new inquiry which has found NHS trust failings have led to the death of a trans woman. On to our first story. During the pandemic, schools and nurseries in England were shut down to protect children, staff and their families, first on the 20th of March and then reopening in the summer. But then for a second time in January 2021, reopening again from March that year. Even at the time, it was a very heated issue, with various sides arguing for and against the measures. Now, amongst those arguing for closures or for delaying reopening were the teachers' unions. They had concerns about vulnerable children, staff, and the potential of transmission to the wider community, which were, at the time, very reasonable worries. But the Tory government had a different view. In May 2020, ministers were planning for the reopening of schools, and a concern raised by teachers was that the shortage of personal protective equipment meant that staff would be at risk if a child became ill with COVID while at school. And that's when then-Education Secretary Gavin Williamson wrote to then-Health Secretary Matt Hancock asking him to intervene to make more of the kit available. Not an unreasonable request on its own, but here's how the rest of the conversation went. Hancock says, It hasn't come to me, but I know Joe Churchill, then Parliamentary Undersecretary for Public Health, was asking why, ca why can't schools buy their own? We're trying to reduce dependence on the central supply system and revert to wholesalers as much as is possible. But there must be a way of saying schools can access via local resilience forums if they have no alternative routes to get hold of any. I understand it's a tiny amount in case a child becomes symptomatic at school. Gavin Williamson replies, it was basically as a last resort, so they can't use it as a reason not to open. All of them will, but some will just want to say they can't, so they have an excuse to avoid having to teach. What joys? Matt Hancock. No problem. On that basis, I'm sure we can sort. I've instructed Spads to find a way through with yours. Emma Dean awaits at your service. So, the education secretary there accusing teachers of asking for basic protective equipment as an excuse not to teach. And it gets even worse. In the summer of 2020, you may recall call that Williamson cancelled all secondary school exams and instead imposed an algorithm that would determine results on the basis of teacher predictions and rankings. Funnily enough, that resulted in students from private schools getting inflated A-level grades, but students from large state schools especially those in economically deprived areas, saw their awarded grades fall far below what had been predicted for them. It was, in short, a shambles. And the General Secretary of the National Education Union, Mary Boosted, accused Williamson's of, quote, ignorance and inaction. By the autumn of 2020, criticism of Williamson had increased, with some teachers calling for the 2021 A-level exams to be cancelled. Instead, 
Williamson announced in October 2020 that exams would be delayed for a few more weeks to allow teachers to make up for lost time. And that is when Matt Hancock texted Williamson again saying this. Cracking announcement today. What a bunch of absolute asses the teaching unions are. Williamson replies, I know, they really, really do just hate work. Hancock, laughing emoji, laughing emoji, bullseye emoji. So, according to these guys, teachers weren't trying to protect their students from the education secretary who'd overseen an A-level disaster that could impact their futures from there on out. No, they were just trying to skive off. Gavin Williamson has now responded to these leaks, and in a statement, he said this. Further to reports in The Telegraph and other outlets, I wish to clarify that these messages were about some unions and not teachers. As demonstrated in the exchange, I was responding regarding unions. I have the utmost respect for teachers who work tirelessly to support students. During the pandemic, teachers went above and beyond during very challenging times and very much continue to do so. Now, I don't know about you, but who makes up the members belonging to teachers' unions? Teachers. So sure, Gavin, we all believe you. Responding to those leaks also on BBC Breakfast was Jeff Barton from the Association of School and College Leaders. It's contemptible. Uh, because we have to remind ourselves that this was an age of extraordinary anxiety. We hadn't got vaccines, etc. And the government was starting to look to the teaching profession to welcome those young people back into school. There was a huge debate going on, very snarky debate about whether face coverings should or shouldn't be worn. And essentially, the very people who then brought those young people back into school are being described in those snide terms by that former education secretary, in the very terms which as somebody who's worked in education for all these years, who wants the brightest and the best young people to want to become politicians, that is less likely this morning because of that sneering denigration of the teaching profession. Anise Sweeney from the National Education Union spoke to Sky. It's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, the discussion with them about could schools just pay for it themselves when we know that school budgets were absolutely pressed to the limit, that schools are already having to make cuts to uh, special educational need provision, to, to subject provision, to suggest that teachers were using funding or lack of funding or lack of PPE as an excuse not to be in the classroom. When they changed their practice, they kept schools open, they kept education going. This is the Secretary of State that oversaw oversaw the worst uh, disgraceful uh, exam series where children from high deprivation areas were uh, were dis disadvantaged by his algorithm. He didn't listen to the profession at all uh, and they are not interested in listening to him right now. For the government, Schools Minister Nick Gibb had the unenviable task of defending Williamson on Good Morning Britain. On October the 1st, 2020, Mr Hancock messaged Gavin Williamson to congratulate him on his decision to delay A-level exams for a few weeks. Um, cracking announcement today, what a bunch of absolute, I can't use the word on breakfast television, the teaching unions are, the then health secretary wrote. And Sir Gavin responded, I know they really, really do just hate work. I mean, this is so disparaging of the teachers you're now claiming he had the utmost respect for. And again, I don't think he... That, that, that those words don't reflect his views, as he himself has said today. And I know they don't reflect his views. His own wife is a 
is a school teacher. Uh, and, and so far as the unions are concerned, you know, they work hard for their membership. And I have the highest regard for all the general secretaries and the staff of all four unions, as does Gavin. It's awkward, and I wish isn't that it, Nick Gibb? Because, of course, you know, you, your department is in discussions with the unions. Right now, we do not want teachers being on strike. We want our teachers to feel valued by government. We want our teachers to feel respected by yeah. government. And we want our unions to feel that when they're in negotiations with you. One union leader said this morning it showed that the government had contempt for them. These are people you're trying to talk to about getting back to the classrooms. Well, as I said, I don't believe those are the views of Gavin, they're certainly not my views, nor the views of the current education secretary. When you see things like this, admittedly you're saying it was a WhatsApp and it was a frustration and he was angry at the time, they sound quite considered, they sound very flippant and they sound very honest, really. But how do you balance that, the need to trust in our politicians when they say one thing publicly and another thing privately? Well, I, I would take what Gavin said publicly as reflecting his own views at the time. Amazing they can't say asses on Good Morning Britain, given some of their presenters. Sean, what do you think? Do things said in public reflect a politician's real views more than what is texted or said in private? Well, I mean, I think the real question there is about whether or not what's said in private reflects the kind of the policy of the government and the contempt for unions and for teachers that are shown in those private messages seems absolutely kind of... Um, commensurate, I don't know, congruous with the kind of governmental contempt for teachers, for the underpayment of teachers and the whole reason that teachers are on strike right now. So to me, it just very much rings true as a reflection of certainly Gavin Williamson's own views, but also the views of the government that he was employed by at the time. Do you think these leaks will have any further impact on trust in politicians? And how does that impact wider democracy? Is it good when we don't trust our politicians or is this corrosive? I mean, it is corrosive. What effect will this have? I don't know. I mean, I think throughout, throughout the pandemic, we've just had multiple revelations of the utter contempt that uh, the, the people in power, Tories in power at the time were showing for the public for um, people on the front line, people, you know, extremely vulnerable workers, care home workers, teachers, um, medical staff. Like we, we've had successive revelations about that. I think the public are quite angry. The problem is, is until we have a general election, we can't really do anything about it. Moving onward. Journalist Isabel Oakeshott is the reporter responsible for bringing Hancock's pandemic WhatsApps into the public domain. But now she's facing questions about why she sat on the messages for a year while ghostwriting Hancock's book, The Pandemic Diaries. Oakeshott appeared on Radio 4's Today programme to be grilled by Nick Robinson about her decision to help Hancock write a selective account of the pandemic before releasing the messages, which somewhat contradict his telling of events. Why write a partial and selective account of COVID with Matt Hancock uh, and then breach his confidence, break a non-disclosure agreement and write an account that contradicts the account that you wrote in the first place? Well, first of all, the account that I helped him write is his account. Uh, I fully discharged my responsibilities to Matt Hancock. Together, we produced a book that made a fantastic impact. It was a book that he wanted. I well, didn't leave anything out. Responsibilities. You I... actually broke a written legal agreement, a non-disclosure agreement, not to reveal the contents. My, of my responsibilities, having 
finished that book with him are now to the public interest. Did you break, the public did you break interest, an NDA? I mean, that's a matter of public record. Okay. And did the, the Telegraph pay you? The public interest is far more important. The, the public interest is far more important. Did the Telegraph pay you for I'm the messages? I'm a working journalist. So they did pay you for the I'm messages? I'm a working journalist. They did not pay me for the messages. I've been helping the Daily Telegraph with the investigation. You'll see that I've been writing stories for the Daily Telegraph. Just for clarity, because it is important. In other words, they didn't pay you a sum to receive the messages, I'm not going to but they get, pay I'm you for your writing. I'm not going to get into any arrangement I have as a journalist. Okay, well, money is partially, arguably, a motive. Your belief that uh, seriously, there are things... Seriously, anyone who thinks I did this for money must be utterly insane. This is about... The millions of people, every one of us in this country, that were adversely affected by the catastrophic decisions to lock down this country repeatedly, often on the flimsiest of evidence for political and reasons. Yet you helped Matt Hancock write a book justifying uh, all why, those very why? decisions. Why? Why? Because I wanted to get to the truth of it. Well, you, yes, but you're now telling us you didn't. Quite get successful the truth of it, as it turned out. Well, in it that did, book. Didn't I? Now, another motive you've given, you've given that one, you've uh, made the perfectly fair point that journalists get paid for their work, but was that you thought that the public inquiry would not do its job properly. Now, the inquiry chair, Lady Hallett, said yesterday you were wrong to say that she would take many years and you were wrong to say there'd be a whitewash. The work is starting now. It's timetabled. We know what the timetable is. So do you now we accept actually, her reassurance? We actually don't. There's no specific deadline for the public inquiry. Look, uh, the judge in, in charge of the inquiry is an extraordinarily well-respected figure. I in no way mean to uh, disparage her. I'm sure she will do a brilliant job. The issue is the remit, which is absolutely enormous. I don't know whether you've looked at it. I have. Uh, I would say that's a lifetime's work. It is completely unrealistic to expect any answers if that remit is carried out as described, with frankly, within the next decade. So what no, no, needs no, to no, happen no, like is the not acceleration fair because they've of that. broken down the remit into sections. They have timetabled when each of those sections the deadline? will begin. And they've also When's announced the that they will give interim reports. When's the deadline? Are you interviewing me now? There isn't yeah. a deadline. You're right well, well, about there isn't precisely, a deadline. Precisely, precisely. But what there is so if what, is a timetable for how and when individual parts of the it, world will be It's not about. enough. I love warm words, but you and I know that warm words, whether from politicians or anything else, don't ever provide what the public actually need, which is answers within a reasonable time frame. Robinson taking an interesting stance there, apparently in defence of Matt Hancock, and he didn't stop there. Yesterday so, you accused him of sending to... a menacing message. This morning in the Telegraph you accused him of sending a threatening message. Are you saying that he's threatening you legally? Well, I think he's done that quite publicly, hasn't he? He's I already, asked you about the already, message. He's Has... already said he's going to see. Are you saying he's threatening you personally? I'm saying that he sent me a message at 1.20 in the morning. Are you saying he threatened you legally or personally in that message? Yes. Legally or personally? I'm saying that he sent me a message at 1.20 in the morning. Well, <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't a pleasant message. Well, is that a surprise? I'm not complaining given... about it. I'm not complaining about well, it. I but think what... you use the word look, threatening or menacing is damaging to his reputation. Oh, look. And people um, are entitled to know. I have so much suggesting... more that I could say. I have so much more that I could say, but it isn't about Matt No, no, Hancock, well, it is, is now because I'm asking a question about him. You I... have gone public by saying he sent you a menacing message, which you now this morning describe as threatening. It's Would you like to withdraw that, that? No, I'm not going to withdraw that. You sure he didn't just say to you you've made a big career mistake? You didn't say I've made a big career mistake. I think I've, made, I've done the right thing here. 
No, I'm not, asking not what he one said. journalist worth their salt would sit on a cache of information in in such an important matter, such a historic matter, and cover that up. Do you know what would have happened if I hadn't released this stuff? The usual suspects would have had a massive go at me for sitting on these files, wouldn't they? We know that. But you did sit on them for more than a year as you, you wrote I a sat book on them. I giving Matt Hancock's right. version of events. Uh, look, I'm not going to uh, get wound up by this. Um, let me be very clear, Nick. There were 2.3 million words. I was trying to write a book in an extraordinarily tight deadline. The book that we wrote was twice the length of a standard political book. It, there is no way I could have gone through 2.3 million words. And you can imagine, knowing that was what I had, uh, how hard it's going to be for the public inquiry. I had a whole year. I couldn't possibly go through it. He hasn't been through it all either. Very good of Nick Robinson to worry about Matt Hancock's damaged reputation, as if eating camel penis on live TV hadn't already inflicted enough of a blow. Now, that was quite a bizarre interview. Robinson seems to be focusing on whether Oakeshott has violated journalistic ethics in releasing those 100,000 messages she had in her possession, which, it's probably important to note, would not have been accessible by the COVID-19 inquiry until they were in the public domain. Of course, Oakeshott could have submitted them directly to the inquiry, but she says she doesn't have any confidence that the investigation would not be a colossal whitewash, a claim rejected, as we heard, by Inquiry Chair Heather Hallett. Perhaps Robinson's line of questioning makes more sense when you consider the context. Isabel Oakeshaw has form when it comes to controversial reporting decisions. She is the journalist who worked with Vicky Price, the ex-wife of former MP Chris Hune. Now, Price was Oakeshott's source for an expose about the then climate secretary after he convinced his wife to take driving penalty points on his behalf when he was caught speeding. Hoon ended up in jail, but so did Vicky Price, which was unfortunate as Oakeshott had cajoled Price into going public by assuring her that she would come out of it fine. Oakeshott is also responsible for reporting the memorable allegation that David Cameron had sexual congress with a dead pig's head while at university, recounted in a book Oakeshott ghostwrote. Now, it later emerged that she had relied on one single source to stand up this claim and further admitted that they might have been, in her own words, slightly deranged. Sean, has Isabel Oakeshott violated any reporting ethics in this release of these texts? And furthermore, does it matter? She's obviously, you know, if we were going to make a meme, Isabel Oakeshott is chaotic evil. <laughs> um, uh, uh, certainly like a deus ex machina actor that uh, we never know what she's going to do next. Um, well, I don't know. Look, I've, 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 uh, I've helped authors with books in the past. Uh, there is an undertaking of trust. There was presumably an NDA. She has broken that trust. Do I care? Not really. I do actually think there probably is arguments for this to be in the public interest. Obviously, Isabel Oakeshott, if you enter her mind, is uh, was someone that was repeatedly anti-lockdown. Um, perhaps is not coming at this from the same angle that you or I might. But actually. I'm inclined to think that uh, it is in the public interest. I, I mo mostly think that Matt Hancock, his level of naivety in handing her more than 100,000 messages is breathtaking. 
While Hancock undoubtedly bears responsibility for these pandemic failures, is he being set up as a fool guy? It's quite interesting that The Telegraph would have published an expose on him. He's out in the cold at the moment. There's no sort of allegations in those texts that in implicate people like Boris Johnson. Is Matt Hancock going to be the scapegoat for the Tory failures during COVID-19? I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's like, do I care? I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, I think he is. Uh, you know, this... I mean, obviously, this pandemic diaries, the the book that he was planning to release was yet another commercial venture for which he was going to be paid um, in order to have this public redemption narrative. Presumably, he was, you know, he went on, um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I think he should have left it there with the hot, with the penis. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, again, he was pursuing this redemption narrative, probably going to be paid for this book deal. Um, so it's hard to really have much sympathy for him. But is he being used as a fall guy? Absolutely. The Tories are looking now down the barrel of the general election. There is a lot of anger about, um, you know, still residual from uh, the mishandling of, uh, well, various crises in, during the pandemic. And as we're sort of getting ever closer to that general election date, Rishi Sunak, uh, his cabinet will want us to forget to associate it with um, with Boris Johnson's time in number 10. And I think it's really handy because every time this flares up again, public anger will rise. It's very handy if they can uh, basically have one fall guy. And Matt Hancock is making himself the perfect candidate for it. Um, as I say, it's hard to have sympathy for him, but I do think it's important that we remember that this is, you know, this is collective failure and that the party responsible is still in power. Matt Hancock maybe will go down in history as the politician who handed the gun to his own assassin. Now, on to our next story. This is Sophie Gwen Williams. Sophie was a Northern Irish artist and community activist who died by suicide in May 2021 at the age of just 28. She was also transgender, and at the time of her death, Sophie had been waiting nearly five years for her first appointment at a gender identity clinic. Campaigners said that this delay in access to healthcare, paired with a lack of professional support, played a role in her death. And now the judiciary agrees. In a conclusion handed down yesterday by North London Coroner's Court, Assistant Coroner John Taylor said that major failings in mental health support by Barnet Enfield and Harringay NHS Trust did contribute to Sophie's suicide. Taylor identified the following as factors in her death. Sophie's anxieties about the failure on the part of BEH to have in place a long-term care plan or provide her with a key worker or care coordination, inappropriate comments made by her therapist at BEH, including misgendering her and asking her when she decided to be trans, the failure on the part of BEH to undertake their own diagnoses of Sophie's condition, including whether she may have dissociative identity disorder or dissociative amnesia, and to treat her accordingly. Continues, the failure on the part of BEH to carry out any risk assessment of the ever-present risk of overdose posed to Sophie during her psychotic and disassociative episodes, the inappropriate therapy she was referred to, which was not capable of addressing the risks connected with Sophie's disassociation and self-harm, and the confirmation by the Tavistock two days before her death that the time Sophie had been waiting for treatment in Belfast would not count towards the time waiting for a first appointment at the Tavistock. The coroner found that the news was 
devastating for Sophie and left her raging. A damning and harrowing list. The coroner also recognised that the extensive wait times for a gender identity clinic appointment had exacerbated Sophie's symptoms of distress. And as a result, he's now made recommendations to prevent future deaths. In a report sent to Barnet, Enfield and Haringey Trust, NHS England and the Tavistock, which is a specialist health trust overseeing the scant NHS gender identity service that exists in the UK, the coroner recommended also providing mental health support to those on the waiting list for a first appointment and better liaison with other mental health services. Taylor additionally highlighted the failure to train clinicians in seeing trans patients and administering gender and administering gender affirming care. Sadly, all these recommendations come too late for Alice Lippman. Alice was 20 years old when she died by suicide in May 2022, just one year after Sophie Gwen Williams. She was trans and, like Sophie, she had been waiting years for a first appointment at a gender identity clinic. Alice's family also wants her experience with the healthcare system listed as a factor in her death and an inquest has been scheduled for later this year. She desperately wanted to move on with her life and the long wait lists meant that she couldn't. And so it was just putting her life on hold. In the end, she just couldn't tolerate it anymore. It has torn our family apart. We loved her with all our hearts. And we are so sad that she's gone. And I do believe that with the right care, she could have managed and she would have thrived. And I think it's not just Alice. It's too late for her. But there are lots of other young transgender people out there. And they need our help. Really, really devastating interview. Sean, what wider purpose do these inquests serve when it comes to improving the healthcare provisions available for transgender people? I don't know. I mean, I think the question here is about what purpose do these inquests serve? And I think I, like many trans people in the UK right now, have a complete lack of faith in institutions of the state and emanations of the state, including the judiciary, including the courts. Nevertheless, I think what the coroner's verdict today may grant to Sophie Gwen Williams' friends, family, and may in turn eventually grant to Alice Whitman's family is a validation of a very real pain, which is that uh, the deaths of these young women was not uh, merely um, something that happened, you know, by their own hand, that they took their own lives because of, you know, in a silo, their own mental health conditions, but rather this takes place in a context in which um, a complete depletion of resources, both with regards to mental health and with regards to trans specialist care, um, like of complete failure to address it, that amounts to what I think, like, to use kind of like, uh, uh, I, a phrase I don't think is actually hysterical at all is social murder. The, like, as Engel said, when you remove the conditions, the necessary conditions for a kind of positive, happy life, including the basic necessities of healthcare from any marginalised group, what you're in effect doing is enacting violence upon them socially that when it results in death can amount to the same as um as interpersonal violence. And I think that's what we are in the trans community experiencing right now. And I think these coroner's verdicts 
are can be helpful in terms of pointing to the fact that even some institutions of the state recognize that there has been a broader failing. And I think that's important for counteracting a public and media narrative that has tended to focus on trans people as where they do have mental health problems, where do trans people do take their own lives, as that somehow that's a sort of individual private tragedy, but not something that needs to be politicized. It absolutely needs to be politicized. And I think we need to start, you know, I think for, for viewers watching at home who maybe have in recent weeks seen the news about Brianna Gay, it can seem very different uh, as a news story to these. But in, in reality, I see it as a sort of broader picture um, in which there are institutional failings, whether that's in education, whether that's a failure to protect young trans kids in school from bullying, or whether it's a failure to give them adequate mental health support, trans kids and trans adults, whether that's with regards to gender identity. And I think it's worth saying too, that with Sophie Gwen Williams, the failures were not just with regards to the gender identity clinic, but also with regards to mental health services, which affect a huge numbers of people um, cisgender people as well as trans people. And I think that's what we should be focusing on and starting with is the point that mental health services, regardless of who you are in this country, have been decimated, have not continued to keep pace with the growing mental health crisis. And that does amount to social violence. And where people die because they're left for years languishing without support, it does amount to a sort of social violence that is equivalent to murder. Do you think this issue of healthcare and the broader failings in healthcare has been properly picked up by the left, specifically when it comes to failings um, that trans people experience in healthcare? Has that been seized upon as a point of coalition organising effectively enough? No, I don't think so. I think, I think with healthcare inequality, I mean, what are my, I don't know. I mean, I think the problem with healthcare inequality is successive. Um, right, you know, right wing governments, both in the UK, but around the world, what can often be created, particularly with the NHS in the UK, I think is a scarcity mentality. Um, sometimes what you can encounter, and I have encountered working in the media, when you talk about the long uh, healthcare waits for trans people, um, is people will sort of bring up, like, you know, the whataboutery, like, well, you know, I don't, you know, the, the waiting list along for this, the uh, mental health support is really poor for this. And to that, I would say, well, yes. I mean, the point is that is a point of coalition is that um, with any with regards to any mental health and with regards to the fact like, you know, the, the fact that it's getting harder and harder and women are having to wait longer and longer in the UK to access abortion, that there are women in Scotland who have to travel to England and so on. You know, this is a sign of the fact that pretty much if you have any body that is in any way marginalized by the sort of gender binary. Um, so if you are a woman of any kind, trans or cis, or if you are any trans person, that it's highly likely that we have not really invested. We have a state that is largely apathetic to your pain, both physical and emotional. Um, and I think that should be the start of a broad um, point of coalition. Um, and I think the other thing to say here too is that uh, you asked originally about whether or not this will improve healthcare provisions for transgender people. Because trans people are such a small minority, because trans healthcare has been framed as such a niche, even within the healthcare profession, such a niche sort of specialist interest for so long, I don't know that real change is going to happen without a broader coalition in this country because whilst these devastating real world impacts on the lives of you know trans communities 
we are seeing them in trans communities is, is very real. And in some cases, in these two cases, sort of the worst possible outcome. I think at large, it's quite easy for it to be swept under the carpet because it doesn't affect that many people. But if there's a broader coalition, again, it's the classic divide and rule, is that if we look at like how disabled people, chronically ill people, people with you know underlying health conditions in the pandemic, pregnant women, women who don't want to be pregnant, it suddenly becomes a much larger group. And I think there is work there to be done on the left. Work to be done on the left, is that not the story of my lifetime? Moving onwards, sadly, Lee Anderson is the deputy chairman of the Tory party. And since he's taken on that role, he's called for the return of the death penalty. And before that, he wanted the national anthem sung in every classroom, the same day return of asylum seekers to France. And he also advised that the Tories fight the next election on trans issues and a culture war. But he has a particular recurring issue with people who use food banks. And now he has a new bone to pick with them. This clip is from a parliamentary debate in Westminster Hall. In some of these deprived areas where, where people are now are so dependent on food banks, it's like a weekly shop for them. They go and you know, I had one particular family I was helping, really, really helping. Um, and they were going to the food bank two or three times a week to get, to get the groceries. And then, you know, I see them in McDonald's. Um, two or three times a week. And I'm thinking, you know, my goodness, I mean, I don't want to stop the little children going for a treat once again, but once in a while. But, you know, it's all about priorities. You know, if, if you're really struggling for money and you're going to a food bank two or three times a week, you shouldn't be going out for fast food takeaways every week. Question seems to be, how does Anderson see them in McDonald's two or three times a week? Does he live there? Does he lurk outside? Sean, why do we keep being told that Lee Anderson speaks for the working class and low-income people when he clearly hates them. Who are we being told by? I mean, it, usually we're being told by right-wing media, which is often um, owned, controlled and staffed by some of the most privileged people in the country. And I think it's very helpful for them to ventri ventriloquise, I'm trying to get that out, ventriloquise, um, I don't know, quite fascistic, racist, etc. talking points, transphobic talking points. Um, through the idea of this kind of mythical working class person. And of course, you can find a bigot with, you know, the right kind of, uh, I don't know, the right kind of views, an accent that uh, seems to convey to sort of middle class, uh, right wing London media's idea of the working class and sell that back to people as this is the voice of the ordinary working people. And I think, um, you know, as a trans person, I think, any minority, you're very used to this idea of this kind of mythic white working class man who um, who basically is, you know, is the true authentic voice of the working class who is deeply opposed to your rights. And reality is, as you say, that these people um, often do hate broad sections of the working class. Now on to our next story. Kemi Badenoch is Britain's Minister for Women and Equalities, though she's always had a pretty novel view of what equality means. And she's now appeared in a select committee meeting where the topic was menopause and whether people undergoing it should be legally protected from discrimination. Menopause, by the way, affects around 13 million people in the UK at any time, and 50% of them reduce their time at work due to their symptoms. 
One in four of them consider leaving their job due to them, and 10% actually do. 85% say there's no one in the workplace they can turn to for support when undergoing the menopause. Now, Carolyn Harris is a Labour MP. She began by asking Badenoch why the minister thought a pilot on menopause leave was a waste of time. That is something which would require far more resources than encouraging employers in, in terms of uh, changing their work culture and demonstrating where the guidance uh, is and lessons learned. You don't, we don't need government to do. I think this is this is kind of, this is a philosophical perspective that we're arguing over. We can go over it from time, you know, till time uh, till time ends. You are speaking from a left wing perspective on creating something. I am speaking from a right uh, centre right perspective. I, I do not think. I'm sorry. Well, I do. Well, I, well, I think I think that it influences the approach that you take. I do not think creating another pilot on more leave is what is going to help women who have the menopause. If I could just let the Secretary State know that I didn't mm. personally write the report from the committee mm. um, and it's a politically mixed committee, so my politics I know have absolutely nothing to do with that. But I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that the approach that you're taking is one that a centre-right government would take <laughs> as... Pardon me? Committee's left-wing. The, the, the committee is not responsible for policy, Carolyn. I am, and I have said that I don't think this is the right way. The committee, the committee, is, is, the committee is responsible for scrutiny. I'm very, very welcoming to suggestions, many of which we've taken up. This is not one of them. We didn't take many up, did you, from the menopause report? Do you know what you did take up? There are many actions which the committee will recommend, which we will take. There are many that we won't take. It is my job to create the policy, and it is your job to do this. Group. Minister, I thank you. I think your commitment to women has been displayed quite adequately this afternoon. Thank no, you I think what much. you're talking about is a thank disagreement. Um, no, pardon me. I, I, I will respond to that. We can, we're free to have disagreements on how to deal with the menopause, but that in and of itself yeah. is not that in and of itself is not uh, a display on my commitment to women. I think women know exactly how committed I am to women's mm-hmm. rights. We have a policy difference, and I'm sorry that we do, I but I won't have my commitment questions. Be warned, if you commit to a culture war, it'll have you saying things like the menopause is left wing. Now, that was an absolutely fascinating exchange between Kemi Badenoch and Carolyn Harris. But Sean, what do you make of Kemi Badenoch's commitment to women in general? Well, it's brilliant, Moya. She doesn't, she's, she doesn't want us to like use the same toilet. She doesn't want my birth certificate to align with the gender I've lived in for like the best part of a decade. What more do you want? What more do you want as a commitment to women? No, obviously, I think, uh, yeah, famous ally to cisgender women uh, when it comes to restricting the rights of trans women. Kimmy Badnock is, uh, yeah, I think her commitment to women in general is uh, questionable, let's say that. What does this perhaps say? about the underlying ideologies of women who put themselves up as defenders of women's rights in the name of hammering trans people. What does it say about misogyny and the way that is manifesting in our modern political sphere? Well, I mean, I think it's worth saying on that point is that you have to remember that the protection of women is a, is has a long history, particularly protection of white women, right? It has a long history as, as a deeply reactionary tool um, of the right. Um, So, you know, the idea that it always aligns with a sort of more 
feminist, you know, left wing liberation, women's liberation, just the fact that you sort of say that you're you're protecting women, in this case, cisgender women from trans women. I think it's actually just a sign, really. It's 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 an old um, way of uh, repressing the rights of many minorities. So to me, it just seems in complete continuation of a long history of deeply regressive um, laws and uh, attacks on minorities throughout history. There was also an interesting moment where Kemi Badenoch described herself as right, and then she corrected it to centre-right. What was going on there? Well, I think, I mean, I don't know exactly what was going inside, uh, going on inside Kemi Badnot's head, but I mean, to me, it just sounds like it's, uh, it's just, it's funnily enough, it's just her trying to put like a, a gloss, I think, I think perhaps they know that right doesn't play very well ever since David Cameron, this idea of the kind of nice Tory, she is a sort of women and equalities minister, I suppose there has to be at least the veneer of some kind of progressive politics. And uh, of course, I don't believe there's any such thing, uh, nor does she, because that's why she said right and then corrected herself. But I would just suspect that that is just a little bit tidying up to, you know, she realised that probably it was best to frame herself as a centre-right politician. And and that, yeah, of course, there is there is a, there is a some progressiveness there. Trust me, you haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm coming with it. And finally, what what does this say about the wider treatment of women, this rejection of this idea of, you know, pilot leave for menopause? What does it say about the wider treatment of women under the hands of this Tory government? Well, I mean, this Tory government is an extremely patriarchal one. I mean, we've talked about it a few times um, today. I mentioned earlier about um, the fact that in the UK there are delayed times for abortion. I think it's it's a deeply patriarchal government in that what is happening here is, is the refusal to entertain the idea that the menopause, a phase of life which obviously primarily cisgender women, uh, but there will also be some trans people who go through it, um, that that is of lit- insufficient priority to warrant some kind of special protection, which is exactly what people would have said like 50 years ago about pregnancy or the potential for pregnancy. Uh, it's again just this idea of, of you know, in this case, in in terms of employment in the workplace, a male normative um, approach, and that's I don't know, same old Tories, same old patriarchy, same old nonsense, isn't it? Indeed, and I also think it's worth noting that these sort of plans, you know, Kemi Badnock rejecting the idea of more leave, also fit alongside Tory plans to push people signed off as sick back into work as part of their plans to. Um, reverse the trend of people leaving the office. There was reports a few weeks ago about the DWP um, bringing tighter controls in on who is actually deemed sick enough to work and forcing doctors not to sign as many sick notes. Sadly, that is the note we'll be ending on today, and it is, as we talked about, a sick one. Thank you so much, Sean Fay, for joining me tonight and sharing your insights. I've really appreciated it. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm with, yes, Michael Walker. But for now, you have been watching you by Navara, Navara Media. Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.